0: Uh, Hi, my name is Kay. The uh, The Old Testament reading is found this morning in Malachi 3, 1 through 4. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way for me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. The word of the Lord. Amen. New Testament reading is found in 2 Corinthians five, nineteen and 20. In other words, God was reconciling the world to himself through Christ by not counting people's sins against them. He has trusted us with this message of reconciliation, so we are ambassadors who represent Christ. God is negotiating with you through us. We beg you as Christ's representatives, be reconciled. To God, the word of the Lord. If you are able, please stand for the reading of the gospel which is found in Matthew twenty one through five. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and He will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and a colt, the fall of the beast of burden, the gospel of the Lord.
1: Amen. You may remain standing as we pray. Please remain standing as we pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you for your presence in this place already by your spirit. And we ask, Lord, that even now you would continue by your spirit to open up our hearts and our mind and our eyes. Lord, reveal Jesus to us, that we would see the Lord, that we would hear your word to us, that you would conform us into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. We pray these things. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, New Life Downtown. How are you today? Not only is it Palm Sunday, and not only is it the launch official merger date of, with New Life Midtown, but this is also the nine-year anniversary for New Life Downtown. Yeah. I don't know if you knew that. I don't know if you remembered that. How many of you were around? It was Palm Sunday, 2012, April 1st was that date. Anyone around... The Howards were there, John was there, Evan was there, you guys were there. I mean, just the light is blinding me, so it's hard to see all the faces in the room. Sorry, I'm like, um, but but it, it was a special day. We were in this little Carter Payne Chapel down on South Weber and Palm Sunday. Uh, we were kind of doing as a soft launch, you know, Easter was going to be the big official service. So here we are nine years later where we are the first and oldest offsite congregation at New Life Church, and here we are nine years later. Thanks be to God. It is great. And of course, you know, this week, uh, as we've alluded to, this starts into Holy Week. There's a number of special services this week. On Good Friday of this week, uh, we will have two Good Friday services, 6 p.m. and 8 p.m. Both of them will be up at the North Campus because of uh, we can fit a lot more chairs and a lot more people in there. The 6 p.m. service will have children's ministry, a limited range of children's ministry. And Pastor Brady will be preaching the 6 p.m. Uh, I'm preaching the 8 p.m. service, but there will be no children's ministry. So you've got some choices to make there. And then on Easter Sunday morning, we'll be back here at the Antlers Hotel. But everybody say with me, 8, 10, and noon. 8, 10, and noon. Those are our three services for Easter Sunday. Uh, If you show up at 9 and 11, it'll be very strange. You'll you'll catch like the tail ends of services. So 8, 10, and noon. Children's ministry will be available in the 8 and the 10, but not at noon, because we figure if you're rolling in at noon... You're probably fine with your kids and all of that. You're you're living the good life. Um, I do I do want to say that if you are um, if you are able, like if you have flexibility because of your stage of life, whatever that might uh, be, if you have flexibility with that, the eight and the noon would be better services to come to because the ten's going to be the primo uh, service for young families, and it'll be uh, it'll be crazy. So if you're into crazy, go ahead, come to the ten. But if you want to, uh, the eight and the noon would be a little bit better. Okay. We are concluding today our series on the minor prophets, and we've called this series Everyday Prophets mostly because these people who wrote these books were sort of ordinary people. Some of them grew up around the temple and were trained as prophets, but many of them were just sort of ordinary folks that the word of the Lord came to. And they're known as minor prophets, not because they're less important or because they wrote songs in minor keys that has nothing to do with it. It's because they didn't write that much. They had shorter oracles, shorter things to say. And so the ones that wrote longer books, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, we call those the major prophets these. Minor prophets, maybe, are a little bit uh, like in today's world, as someone who writes a series of blogs or a series of Instagram posts or whatever. And you're like, okay, I think they're trying to say something. But as we get to the end of it here, we're in the final book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi. And this morning, I've titled our reflection together, The Horror and the Hope. The Horror and the Hope. I'm not a person who likes horror movies. Uh, once when I was young, uh, someone took me to a, a horror movie. I really did not like it, and I have never enjoyed it. I mean, I don't even like mildly suspenseful movies, like the M. Night Shyamalan sort of movies. You know, I just I prefer a good action adventure story or something that's going to make me like full-on belly laugh. You know, like that's my kind of movie. But I know enough about horror movies to know that the most horrifying of horror movies are not the ones where there's some sort of post-apocalyptic desolation, but the most horrifying of horror movies are where everything looks normal, except for one little detail. You know what I'm talking about? Like, you're like, this is like just a normal suburb, a normal street, and then you're like, something's off here. And maybe what's worse in those movies is that people are running from some terrible thing or whatever, and they get in their house, and the house is supposed to be this place that is safe, and the house is supposed to be the place where nothing can touch them, and they're locking doors, and they're sealing the windows, and all of this stuff, and they're like, okay, we're good, we're good, and the music changes, and you're like, okay, I think we're good, and all of a sudden, like the floor creaks, or a door slams, and you're, or a light flickers off and then the music changes and it's like and you're thinking oh no the worst is yet to come and the horror is not just out there it's in here Malachi is going to reveal some horrible things and what Malachi is trying to say to the people of God is the thing you were most afraid of is not just out there it's actually in here See, Malachi takes place after the people of God have already returned to the land. Maybe you recall some of the other prophet books. Some of them were prophesying before they had been carried off into exile, before Judah had been taken captivity into Babylon, before the Assyrians came and took the northern kingdom of Samaria, Israel, and scattered them all over. Some of the prophets spoke before that. Some of them spoke during it. The, the, the words of judgment. Some of them spoke words of judgment to those other empires after it had happened. We talked about Nahum's word to Assyria. But then as we've been the last couple weeks, which by the way, I've missed you the last couple of weeks it's been a long time. March, yeah, you don't have to clap. It's okay. I just wanted to say I missed. You can go aw if you want to go aw, you know, but, but I, I was at Manitou on March 7th, and we had the blizzard on March 14th. I was supposed to be here. And last week, we had some, uh, you know, a number of staff had some quarantine issues. A couple are still out today, uh, but, but their timelines will be up soon, and they'll be back. But where, where was I? Okay, so the last few prophets are prophesying after people have already returned, And so you've got Haggai and you've got Zechariah and the people are back and they're rebuilding the temple. Daniel Grothy preached last week about this shabby temple and they're like, could God really be blessing us with this thing? And they're like, come on, take heart. God's presence is going to be here. And so when we get to Malachi, everything seems like it should be okay. The people have returned. The temple has been rebuilt It seems like maybe the covenant has been renewed, maybe everything's okay. That's a little bit like us in this moment. Like okay, think maybe the pandemic's over, maybe people are getting back, you think maybe stuff is gonna open up, maybe stuff is gonna be normal again, maybe the summer will be okay. And you realize what if our worst problem is not a virus? What if our problem is not actually those things that we're like, oh, it's not politics, it's not a pandemic, it's not this or this or this. What if the problem is a little bit closer to home? And this is what Malachi is trying to say. And so right away here in chapter one, that the book is structured with a series of disputations, of arguments back and forth between God and the people. And we're going to just highlight three of them today. Malachi 1 verse 6. God is talking. and He says, a son honors his father and a servant his master. And if then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I'm a master, where's my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, whoa, 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 God, how have we despised your name? And God answers by offering polluted food on my altar. But you say, whoa, 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 how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. How have we done that? When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? When you offer those who are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? Here's what God is saying. He's saying your sacrifices are polluted. The sacrifices are polluted. You're coming to offer something to God, but it's the stuff that's kind of blemished. It's the stuff that nobody really wants. And God's saying, would you even do that to the governor? Like if you had someone coming, would you put out kind of some, some weak, dried up flowers and say, I'm so glad you're here. And like, what, what? These flowers are wilted. Would you open up the refrigerator when you're having an honored guest for dinner and say, I don't know, I think the kids have some frozen chicken nuggets. Let's do that. God's like, is this what you're, but you're going to offer that to me The sacrifices are polluted. Then as he goes on in Malachi chapter 2, he starts talking to the priests. And he says, and now, O priest, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send a curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Imagine this. Israel was was blessed to be a blessing. Remember the call of Abraham? And now he says, I'm going to curse your blessings. What? Indeed, I've already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. What, what went wrong? Skip down to verse 7. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge. A priest is there to remember the way and keep us in the way. And the people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But he says, but you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts, and so I will make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. Not only are the sacrifices polluted, but the priests are corrupt. It's one thing for people to lose their way, but what happens when the people who are supposed to be your teachers are teaching you in the wrong way? If you've lost your way, but there's still teachers, you could say, well, the teachers will help us find our way back. But God says, and repeatedly in this verse, the word instruction is used. It's that Hebrew word Torah, teaching. The ones who are supposed to remind you of the way are themselves distorting the way. If you're lost and your GPS is off too, how in the world are you going to find your way back? If it's, one, it's bad enough to be lost, but what if you have a faulty GPS? So God is saying to them, not only are your sacrifices polluted, but the priests are corrupt. And then he says in verse 8 of Malachi 3, will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. And you say, whoa, 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 God, how have we robbed you? And he says, in your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me. The whole nation of you. And this is an interesting one. I, if you grew up in some churches that had long offering sermons, maybe you, you've heard this verse used a lot. It's used a lot to kind of guilt people. You better you don't rob God. Give your offerings and give your tithes. And so maybe sometimes you hear verses like this and you're like, oh my gosh, heavy handed guilt trip. Like what does this verse even really mean? First of all, the word tithe is an interesting one. You know, maybe you hear it, you know, Pastor Evan said it this morning, this moment, where we give our tithes and our offerings. But sometimes we say it so quickly, and if you've not been in church uh, before, you're kind of like, bring our tithes and offerings. What are our tithes? Like hair ties? Like neck Like what kinds of ties do we put in here? Any ties? A tithe is a tenth. And, and it's an old practice. It wasn't unique to Israel. People in ancient cultures would give a tenth as a way of paying tribute, as a way of honoring uh, someone who had been gracious to them. But what was unique about Israel was that their tithe was brought to the Lord in a place of worship. So instead of bringing a tithe to, say, a king or to a ruler, they would bring a tithe to the priest. And that that was the unique spin that Israel put on this practice. In other words, they were saying there is a kind of giving that is strictly about worship. It's about worship. It's about devotion to God. It's about honoring God. It's about worship. Now, when you think about this, this is is why Christian practice of giving to the Lord, and we say this every week, giving your tithes and your offerings, it's less about the percentage and always about the heart, Because the heart in giving to the local church is so radically different than any other kind of giving. We understand savings. We understand investments. We understand charitable donations. We understand giving to a ministry we believe in. We understand giving to a cause. But do you know when you bring your tithe to the Lord, regardless of what the percentage is, that it is none of those things? It's not a tip. It's not a tax. It's not a donation. It's not a gift. It's not a contribution. It's worship. And the people of God in Malachi's day, they're looking and they're saying, well, the temple's already built. In other words, they had had corrupted their thinking that you only give to God when God seems to need something. And Malachi's saying, it's not about need. It's about your heart. God never needed your money, but he always required your heart. He always wanted your worship. And so now we see not only are sacrifices polluted and priests corrupt, but now all of a sudden the people are cheating the problem is worse than they realized. It's not just that they were in exile. It's not just that they didn't have a temple. They got back to the land. They got back to this place. They've got the temple. They're doing all of this stuff. And yet, everything is falling apart. In short, if we were to say, what's the, what's the bottom line message in Malachi? It's that Israel has been unfaithful to the covenant. At the end of the day, any expression of covenant faithfulness, sacrifices, offerings, fidelity to the teaching of the Lord, all of those signs of covenant loyalty are not there. The main message, the horror that Malachi reveals is that the people have been unfaithful. Now here we are on Palm Sunday and I can't help but see a sort of parallel in the life of Christ. Like Israel, Jesus comes into Jerusalem Just like Israel returned to Jerusalem with worship and rejoicing, woo, the temple's back, we're back, game on. Jesus returns to Jerusalem with joy and hope, just like Israel did. And yet, Jesus brings together not just this sort of Israel story where he's kind of reenacting it, but he reenacts the God part of the story too. Like God through the prophet Malachi, Jesus confronts Israel for their unfaithfulness. See, this is the part of the Palm Sunday story that we often miss. We know the story of people waving palm branches and saying, Hosanna, you're, you save us. We've talked about it. But do you know the very next thing those, the Gospels record Jesus doing? The very next thing. It's the cleansing of the temple. Now, there's four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John kind of does his own thing. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're called the synoptics. They generally tell the same stories in the same order, more or less. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke, right after the triumphal entry Hosanna story, they tell this story right here, Matthew 21. Matthew 21, verse 12, as Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. What is Jesus talking about? He's quoting Isaiah saying, you've turned it into a den of robbers. Sometimes people have quoted this whenever we have like a, you know, like a book table or a t-shirt table or a latte station or whatever in the church lobby. And they're like, let's go overturn the tables. How dare you sell, have merchandise. The issue was not selling stuff. The issue was exploitation. People came from all around Israel to worship at the temple in Jerusalem. They weren't going to travel for days and lug their pigeons and doves with them. It wasn't going to happen. So they needed to be able to buy animals to offer. But what Jesus knew is you are taking advantage of people who have to buy something and you're exploiting their need by overcharging them. And so he turns over the tables of these money changers saying, don't take a person's desire for worship and exploit them from it. Don't do that. And in fact, this is the very thing Malachi said. This is the verse that we heard in the Old Testament reading this morning. Malachi 3, verse 1. Behold, I'll send my messenger and he'll prepare the way. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Now, I imagine if Malachi was was sharing this prophecy one day, people heard it and he paused right there. The Lord will come to his temple. They're probably like, woo! And then he says, "Uh uh-uh, not so fast. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming But who can endure the day of his coming? Because when God comes to his temple, it's to purify it. Here's the message I want you to see, church Israel thought, once we get back to the land, get back to worship, everything will be fine because all of our problems were external. And they discovered, no, 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 your problems were internal, it's your own unfaithfulness. In a similar way, 500 years later, Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem on the donkey, and they're like, Woohoo, he's come to save us. And he's thinking, and they're thinking, Now, Jesus, would you get on with dealing with the Romans and get on with dealing with them? All of these people are evil. They are the evil ones. And Jesus says, Actually, I'm going to start with the temple. What person, after winning an election, instead of advancing their agenda, decides to turn on their own people. But that, in a way, is what Jesus does. They're like, you're our king, save us. He's like, yeah, I'm going to save you from yourself. I'm going to point out your own flaws. And he cleanses the temple, and the very next thing he does is he curses a fig tree. It's this metaphor of Israel who is supposed to bear fruit and be a blessing. In other words... In Malachi and in Paul, on Palm Sunday, God is trying to say to us: the problem is not just out there; it's in here. Some years ago, we lived in a house that had wooden siding, and one summer morning, we heard this noise on the outside: tick, 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 followed by ha 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 <laughs> ha. <laughs> it wasn't that obvious, but we figured out it was a woodpecker. And I'm not Mr. Handyman, and I thought, what are we going to do? It's at the tallest part of the house, right, by, right below the, where the roof line meets. And we're calling people like, "Ah, oh, you probably need to like put up you know some sort of metal thing there. They don't like you know pecking on a metal thing like yeah, okay. And then I was like, I don't know. Maybe we'll get to it. And I kept delaying it, and kept delaying, and kept delaying it. And I thought I was just hoping that he would just do some damage to the exterior because you know who cares? It was an older house, like external damage, it's okay. And then one day, <laughs> Jonas and I went. There's this attic, this little storage attic, and we pulled down the little string, and the you know, attic steps unfolded down, and we're climbing up to go grab a tub from the storage thing, and this bird comes flying over our head. And we're like, oh my goodness, what was that? Quickly climbing back down. And we discover later that the woodpecker is not just pecking outside, it's inside. It's made a nest inside our attic. And of course, we had to properly deal with it and all of that. This is that moment in the story where they think, it's the Romans, God. And before that, it was Babylon, and it was Assyria, and it was all these people, and it was just those priests, and it was just those wicked kings, and it's just them. But it's not us, God. It's not really us, God. And Jesus comes 400 years after Malachi, and he says, no, 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 it's all of you. The problem is not just out there, it's in here. Over 100 years ago, a, a London newspaper the editors published an op-ed trying to figure out what's going on in the world. And the editors posed a singular question to their readers. They said, what is wrong with the world? 1910, London newspaper. What is wrong with the world? And they invited their readers to write back some suggestions. And some pointed to economic hardships. And other people pointed out to politics. And other people said this and that. But there's a Christian writer named G.K. Chesterton. And he famously, the story goes, Wrote back to the newspaper, you asked, what is wrong with the world? And he writes a single sentence back, dear sirs, I am. Dear sirs, I am. I wonder what would happen to us if we began to think like that. If we began to be willing to actually confess our own unfaithfulness. We have to confess our own unfaithfulness. We live in a moment, a cultural moment, where we want to point out everybody else's flaws. And we want to blame institutions, and we want to blame this and that, and it's, oh, it's the system, it's the education, it's politics, it's this person, it's that, it's that all of these things are wrong. We want to do everything except confess our own sin. It's not that I don't believe in collective responsibility, I do. When you read the scriptures, there is simultaneously a sense of you are your brother's keeper and you are to love your neighbor and love the stranger. There is such a thing as collective responsibility, but there is also such, such, there's a difference between collective responsibility and personal culpability. Let me say that again. Collective responsibility and personal culpability. We are responsible for one another, but only I can be guilty for my own sin. Personal culpability. In the Old Testament, there was an instruction that said, a parent cannot take the guilt for their children's sin. And a child cannot take the guilt for their parents' sin. So it's okay to recognize the ways that we may have failed one another in our collective responsibility, and it might be okay to say that these systems need to be fixed and these things need to be changed. Indeed, they do. But do not forget for a moment that there is also a personal culpability. A moment where we have to say, What is wrong with the world? Dear sirs, I am. What's wrong with America? I am. What's wrong with Colorado? I am. What's wrong with the American church? I am. What's wrong with New Life Church? I am. What's wrong with New Life downtown? I am. I have never gotten one of those emails. (laughs) We have to confess our own unfaithfulness. The brilliant thing about Jesus is that he doesn't just come to confront. He's not just a prophet. Jesus, the very sin he confronted, he was crucified for. The very thing Jesus exposed, he atoned. The very thing he revealed, he redeemed. You see, Jesus was crucified so that we could be reconciled. Jesus was crucified so that we could be reconciled. We heard it in the New Testament reading this morning, 2 Corinthians 5. In other words, God was reconciling the world to himself, Paul says. God was reconciling the world to himself through Christ. We can't just imagine that God was in Christ confronting the world. That is true, but God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And friends, this is what Malachi had only hoped for. Malachi revealed the horror of the situation. Malachi revealed the horror of the depths of their sin and unfaithfulness. But Malachi also had this hope. Malachi 4, verses 2 and 3. But you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise. I looked up a few commentaries this week as I was preparing this thinking, what is this son of righteousness phrase? Some said maybe it's a Messiah term, but most of them said the simplest way to understand this is it's a new day. Just like the sun brings a new day, but he says the sun of righteousness, it's the day when things are put right. A day will rise and it will bring healing with it. Malachi is saying, look, everything is broken. The sacrifices are polluted. The priests are corrupt. You people are cheating God. We're all done for. The problem wasn't Babylon. The problem was us. And he says, but one day, a new day of rightness will come. A son, the son of righteousness will come. And Malachi couldn't have known it, but that's exactly what Jesus did because Jesus doesn't just ride in on Palm Sunday and Jesus doesn't just cleanse the temple. Jesus goes all the way to the hill on Calvary and dies on behalf of all of us for our sin, for our unfaithfulness, for our wickedness, for our failure. It fell on him. And on the third day, the son of God rose with healing in his wings. Jesus rose. You see, Jesus is much better than a prophet. The best a prophet can do is reveal things. If you spend any time on social media as I do, on Twitter or Facebook, there's a lot of people who want to be prophets. <laughs> a lot of people who want to speak the truth to power and reveal things and call things out. Great, 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 great. Do you know what a prophet can't do? A prophet can't actually offer Redemption. Prophet can reveal, prophet can tell you the truth. The prophets in the Old Testament reveal the heart of God, Hosea. God is a lover who cares for you. The prophets can reveal the depths of our sin and our unfaithfulness. But the prophets can't actually rescue and redeem. Jesus is not just a prophet who confronts our sin. He's the God who saves us from our sin. Not just the prophet who confronts our sin, but the God who saves us from it. Yeah. Yeah. This morning on this Palm Sunday, we're going to come to the table of the Lord. And the invitation before us is wherever we find ourselves, whatever way that we have said, I, I've fallen short. God, I, I've contributed to this. God, I'm not, I'm not living faithfully. You, you don't have my full heart. I'm not offering you my whole life. I'm offering you the equivalent of polluted sacrifices. I'm offering you the equivalent of things that are second best. I'm not giving you my whole self. I'm giving you a corner of it and saying, do that. But really, I want to hold on to this. This morning is the moment to be able to come level before the foot of the cross. To come level before the foot of the cross. And for all of us to be able to pray and ask for the mercy of the Lord. Say, God, there's not one of us who's been righteous. There's not one of us who's been faithful. But Jesus, you are always faithful. You're always faithful. You're always faithful. You've always been the God who came after us, even when we were running away. You've always been the God who chose to die and give himself for us. Always faithful. Always faithful.